Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 3rd of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were listening to our programme yesterday, you may have heard our discussion on e-scooters and how the Road Safety Authority has recommended that new legislation should introduce a minimum age of 16 for riders. Riders, they said, should also be required by law to wear a helmet. It should be illegal to use an e-scooter on a footpath or in a road where the speed limit is higher than 50 kilometres an hour. And the RSA has also recommended that e-scooters should have a limit on how fast they can travel with a maximum speed of 20 kilometres an hour. News today, though, that there will be no regulations for electric bikes and e-scooters that have a top speed, not of 20 kilometres an hour as per the RSA's recommended maximum speed, but 25 kilometres an hour. The Irish Times is reporting that the junior minister, Hildegard Nocton, has said in response to a parliamentary question that there will be regulations for e-bikes that allow for pedal assistance over 25 kilometres an hour. In fact, you'll need a driving licence, tax and insurance and you'll be prohibited from using them in pedestrianised and cycle lanes. These regulations will come under the Road Traffic and Roads Bill, but it seems that there'll be no regulations whatsoever on using e-scooters and e-bikes that travel at speeds of less than 25 kilometres an hour. Now let's uh, speak uh, to independent TD for Kerry Michael Healy Ray, who has a a particular interest in all of this and uh, very good morning to you, Michael Healy Ray, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, when did you get your e-scooter? Well, first of all, good morning, Michael, to you and to your listeners. And uh, yes, I have a particular interest in this because what we are hearing continuously is that we, we should try to make use of other methods of transport where we're able to, in other words, more environmentally friendly ways of moving ourselves from A to B. E-scooters are obviously uh, one method of this transportation 
which would be a lot more environmentally friendly, but we also want it to happen in a safe fashion. What we don't want is we don't want to over-regulate it. We don't want to tie people's hands behind their back with gobbledygook and nonsense that would deter them from using them. Uh, yes, I do own an e-scooter over the last couple of years. Mm. I did uh, want to use it in Dublin all along, in particularly when we were out in the convention centre and travelling in and out from the Dáil for boats. It would have been a very quick and, uh, and, and fast way of moving from A to B rather than being caught in traffic. And I can see a situation where e-scooters would be a most welcomed uh, development in our towns and, and cities and larger built-up areas. Mm. But again, uh, while wearing safety helmets, of course, is of paramount importance. And I think that having that uh, legality is, is an absolute must. Uh, but because yeah. if it only prevented one injury ever, wouldn't that a uh, head injury, wouldn't that be a great day's work done by everybody? Well, so, I, 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 I would think so, yeah. Uh, and I about, I, am, am I right in thinking that you wanted to use your e-scooter travelling from Leinster House to the Convention Centre because your Honda 50 was stolen that time? No, my, no, and what was stolen was, I still have my Honda 50, thanks be to God. Okay. Nobody got to steal that yet. But, but yes, unfortunately, somebody thought it was a good idea to steal my bicycle, uh, which was very handy above around Dublin. And you can be sure when I will start using my e-scooter, I will be a lot more careful with that than I was with my bicycle. But, but that's enough about me and my careless habits when it comes to <laughs> minding things like that. But, but what I would say to everybody who wants to use an e-scooter, I would warmly welcome uh, clarification for the people. But what I don't want is I don't want it to be, uh, for instance, uh, tied up uh, in, in, and make it expensive for people to use them. It's one thing to buy it and have your charging kit. And would you mind in two microns, I use mm. the opportunity... And I don't want to frighten anybody now, but I've just come across a lot of instances uh, where there seems to have been instances, uh, not just with e-scooters now, because I don't want to give the wrong impression, but the charging devices for some mechanisms can be uh, dangerous. And I'd always recommend if a person is charging any type of thing uh, that that they wouldn't leave these things on in, at night time when people are asleep or something like that. Any object would ever be charging is very sensible to be up and about when it's being charged in case anything goes wrong with a charging device. Uh, but I think that e-scooters are a, a, a thing that we should all promote. We should all use if we can mm. in certain circumstances. Now, uh, out in the countryside, an e-scooter might not be a, a great way of, of transport yourself from A to B. But On an open uh, road where cars are travelling at 80 or 100. Well, yes, that wouldn't be very sensible either. But mm. in more built-up areas, I can see a massive, massive uh, need and want for them. So uh, moving on with the legislation, mm. giving people clarification, the people who sell these uh, very good uh, items, uh, they want uh, to promote the sale of their devices and, of course, they're rightly entitled to do so. And they, we would all be playing our part then in reducing our emissions, which we seem to hear an awful, awful lot about all the time. But while we have some legislators uh, shouting about reducing our emissions, they're the very same people who seem to do very little practical uh, movements when it comes to giving people alternatives. What about people who say they're a nuisance, though? No, I wouldn't agree with that. That's the same as a person saying to me, a person on a bicycle is a nuisance. If I'm driving my car 
And if, if I'm passing out somebody on a bicycle, I don't look upon that person as a nuisance. That person is every bit as entitled mm. to be on the road as I am. Ah. A motor cat. No, I don't think people mind if they're on the road. Not a, as much as if they're on the footpath. Well, uh, look, of course you're right about that. If there's people walking along a footpath and if you saw somebody coming at you with a bicycle, sure, you would be frightened, you'd be intimidated. What about a person who might be pushing a child or a, mm. a pram and to come across somebody on a footpath with a bicycle or an e-scooter? Of course, that would be wrong. But I mean, look... But if you don't put the regulations in place, you're going to... Uh, continue to see people using them on the footpaths uh, and I mean you know that the National Council for the Blind the Irish Wheelchair Association and uh, the Irish Guide Dogs Association have very serious concerns about that Yes they do because I'm a very big supporter of the, the people who, who provide and who work with uh, blind dogs uh, or dogs for the, the blind sorry mm. even uh, last uh, Sunday now for instance at our own show on Kilgarvan uh, there was a stand there of people who provide assistive dogs because, as you know, it's not just dogs now to guide uh, people with visual impairment. We also have assistive dogs who assist people. Uh, perhaps it could be t- children who have different needs mm. and requirements. And a, a dog is a great companion, a, a great source of safety for them. Mm. And, of course, we have to take all of those people into consideration. But we've been hearing complaints now for a long period of time from people young and old who, who, who don't have uh, those kind of restrictions uh, apart from anything else. Uh, but they say that the bikes come up behind them, you can't hear them, they're on top of them, they're expecting them to move out of the way, move out of the road. Uh, and you also hear from people uh, who uh, whose front door opens out onto a footpath and quite often uh, there's been near misses that we heard uh, about from people who've stepped out of their front door only to have one of these e-scooters whiz by them. Yes, of course you're right in that. But look, in life there's uh, guides of behaviour which are what's right and what's wrong. And it's obvious somebody using any type of device, be it a bicycle, be it an e-scooter, on a, on a footpath where they'd be endangering or upsetting other people are our guide dogs. Of course, that, that's wrong. And if we have to legislate for that, that's fine. But it looks, it looks like I, we're not, though. And I think that's the point from the article in the Irish Times today. They're saying uh, that if your vehicle, let's say, travels over 25 kilometres an hour to be prohibited from uh, being used in a pedestrian zone or a cycle lane, uh, they're too fast. Uh, but if there's no regulations on scooters that travel uh, less than 25 kilometres... Uh, well, then surely they can continue to use the footpaths. We know they're using them now, and the guards say that they have a problem placing it. Yes. Well, I wouldn't like to see a situation like that continue because, again, when, when a person wants to use one device, you don't want to be the cause of upsetting somebody else. And we all would just want to get on. We all want to get to work. We all want to go from A to B in a safe and proper fashion. This matter, the legislation that is required has been held up for a long, long time. Two years ago, we should have dealt with this matter. And again, we see certain, um, uh, how would I say, uh, individuals in government, and they're jumping up and down an awful lot about certain issues and about reducing emissions. But when it actually comes to doing practical things like this and getting this right, isn't it amazing how slow and how uh, 
how would I say, not willing to move forward. We are on certain issues. But it, 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 it sounds to me like you're objecting to the way they're approaching it. Uh, if That's if I'm reading between the lines correctly in uh, the Irish Times article this morning that there won't be any regulations at all for e-scooters. What I would have liked is two years ago, at least two years ago, and I, I met with mm. uh, people who were involved in the sale of e-scooters and, and all of that sort of people who were lobbying for this, Mm. And they said, why can't we move this on? Why can't we get on with it? And uh, unfortunately, it, it, it hasn't happened to date. And uh, we seem to be talking a lot of talk, but doing very little in practical terms uh, to give clarification to everybody. And uh, when the doll is back, I, I would certainly hope that we can get it right. And that uh, considering it has been so slow, that we eventually get it right when we do bring in the legislation. Okay. And that we, we would allow for a situation where we would see them being commonly used mm. and more in use every day, but not upsetting other people. And, and, and should, 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 remember, the view, should the view of the Road Safety Authority be taken on board in terms of safety? They're saying uh, you should be at least 16, you should wear a wel- helmet, and you shouldn't be able to drive at anything more than 20 kilometres an hour. Now it seems as though you could get on uh, a scooter at 10 years of age without a helmet and drive up to 25 kilometres an hour. I don't always agree with what the RSA say or what they promote or what they do. They do excellent work, but sometimes they go... They, they go down other certain lines, which I don't agree with. But the majority of what they're saying about the e-scooters, I would actually agree with, and I'm glad to say that. And uh, But the one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm very, very anxious for is that you will always have people who criticise other people. It's like the, the people on bicycles. I mean, I know people who it, it seems to be their hobby has to complain about cyclists. And I'll say it again. A cyclist is perfectly entitled to be on the road as much as anybody else, mm. provided we all... Do. I mean, there's no sense in people being on a bicycle and be out in the middle of the, of the road holding up... That's why people complain. Them. They complain because yes. they're four abreast. Yes, and that's obviously mm. wrong. But the majority of people don't do that. Mm. And again, I would I would contend that when people will use these scooters, the very vast majority... There's an awful lot of cyclists who do that, and uh, most of them appear to be grown men, and I, and I, and I, and I do mean men, not women, uh, and they seem to uh, be uh, of an age that you'd expect that they'd have cars, and they're out on a, a Sunday and think, well, look, you know, you're not going to interfere with me uh, and my hobby, uh, and I have as much a, a right, I pay my road tax of, uh, as much a right to use the road and chat with my friends as I cycle along uh, as you have to drive your car I know well that's people being uh, how would I say being rude to the other road users Mm. and I wouldn't agree with that but the majority of people who cycle bicycles are responsible and are careful not to hold up traffic and of course it's like everything in life you're not going to be able to legislate for everybody's Mm. behaviour unfortunately Michael much as I think is possible it is not but we have to rely on people to do the right thing uh, the majority of the time Mm. but if there are no regulations in place we can't get them off the footpaths and people are genuinely concerned about that aren't they? Well, whatever the legislation is going to be, we would hope we'll get it right. And then at the end of the day, we would hope that there's a little thing called common sense and it's supposed to be between people's two years. And if people are on an e-scooter and if they know that it's wrong and dangerous and upsetting mm. to others to be in a footpath, even if they have the right to do so, it doesn't mean to say they have to do it. 
what people should do is try and do the right thing for everybody and get on with everybody. And everybody sometimes will make mistakes and do things wrong, but the majority of time we'd like to think that mm. they get things right. Okay, uh, and you mentioned helmets. Am I right in thinking uh, you had a helmet specially made for you? No, no, I just got a helmet that suited me, but I made sure that, to be honest with you, I wouldn't use it without the helmet quite simply because uh, I would consider it the same as going on, on a motorbike without a helmet. It would be wrong because if anything happens and if there's nothing to protect your head, well, it can have catastrophic results mm. and uh, you, you can be a danger to yourself and to others. So uh, wearing a helmet, whether it's really a motorbike or a bicycle or an e-scooter, they're all the same. You're moving quicker than normal and if something happens and you come off, well, if there's nothing to protect you, unfortunately, a cap wouldn't exactly cut it. So <laughs> you should wear a helmet. Absolutely. Um, and you're still on the Honda 50 um, uh, driving about. Uh, when, when, when do you hope to be using your e-scooter? I take it you're not using it at the moment. No, I'm not using that at the moment. But as soon as the legislation is in place and when it's OK to, 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 to do so, I will be using it and I'll be, uh, I, I will be uh, on the streets in Dublin once once, once it's right to do so. Okay, alright, uh, and uh, perhaps uh, there'll be regulations in place that we don't know about as yet, but it seems that there won't be any uh, if uh, that Irish Times uh, report is uh, correct, or if we're reading it correctly uh, this morning. Uh, we'll leave it there though for the moment, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Independent TD for Kerry, Michael Healy Ray. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's uh, quite a, a dramatic uh, story on the front page of uh, the Irish Examiner today. Uh, you may not be too surprised to, to hear that spending on housing is behind target, uh, but it's 28% behind target for just three months. And we're talking about a 200 million underspend uh, that in the second quarter of this year, Daniel McConnell, the political editor of the Irish Examiner, reports the plan was to spend 705 million euro on capital expenditure on housing and related matters. Uh, But that figure is uh, just 506 million. 200 million short at a a time as Daniel says in his article that uh, there is a housing emergency let's uh, speak uh, to Peter McVerry Jesuit Jesuit priest who works with uh, the homeless good morning uh, Peter and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program that's uh, pretty hard to take it isn't it it's not altogether the Department of uh, Housing's fault to be honest but I think what we could do is a streamline the bureaucracy. What happens is the local authority have very little power <coughs> to, uh, to decide on, on building. They, if they want to build, say, 100 social houses, they have to send the plans and the costings up to the Department of Housing. Department of Housing could take months to get back with approval for that. And by the time they do get back, the cost of the housing has gone up because of inflation. Mm. Uh, so they have to send revised costings back to the Department of Housing and wait for approval for the, for the revised costings. Uh, so I think we need to streamline that bureaucracy. Yeah, I think we need to give the control and power to the local authority and say, look, here's a certain amount of money, go and build social housing. Mm. 
However, some of the factors are outside the control of the Department of Housing. Inflation, clearly. Mm. There's huge inflation in the building materials and there's inflation in the cost of labour because we have a shortage of skilled labour and there are supply problems partly because of Ukraine so that it can be difficult to get the materials and that delays the whole process. Mm. And as well as that, construction companies, and we're finding this ourselves as a charity, construction companies are reluctant uh, to sign a fixed-cost contract. Yeah. Mm. So you want them to you get the final so price. Right? Houses, you're saying they won't do that because mm. by the time they complete the houses, the costs could have gone up again, and they mm. they could be at a loss. You'll get the final price when the work is complete because nobody knows how much uh, the ultimate cost is going That's to be. The problem. But, That's but, the but, problem. The department won't sign off on, mm. on something okay. like that. Uh, and the minister has uh, told the Irish Examiner that inflation uh, is uh, the reason for this uh, construction inflation. Uh, to a large part at least I don't think there's mention of the bureaucracy uh, but uh, inflation isn't a reason to stop spending on housing uh, maybe you'll get less houses for your money but uh, surely they should spend the 200 million well, we're talking about social housing now and social housing is to be built by the local authority so if the local authority doesn't have the power to make the decisions but has to refer all decision making up to the department then you get a log jam there uh, and that can uh, that creates problems. The reality is that the Department of Housing Social Housing Programme has been behind target every year, for probably for the last 15 years. They've never reached their targets. The target for this year is 9,000 social houses. That's a record, a record in this country. But in the first three months of this year, they've been 600. So we're not going to complete 9,000 or anything like it this year. Mm. And I think that has to be uh, examined. Okay, uh, and the targets have been missed continuously, apparently, since 2020. It's uh, the third time there's been a, an underspend on this scale. Well, I, I think, pro- and probably long before that as well. Uh, we've never, though our targets before that were very low. <laughs> our targets for social housing were, were very, very low uh, prior to 2020. Uh, so m- we didn't even meet those very low targets. But now that Housing for All has set very, very ambitious targets for social mm. housing, uh, we're, we're way, way behind. Yeah, well, what, uh, according to Daniel McConnell's article, uh, 600 units in the first three months. Uh, if you continue at that rate, uh, well, then what have you got? Two and a half thousand houses instead of 9,000 houses. Yeah, but there will be a pickup. There, so. There's always a pickup in the second half of the year because uh, uh, houses that began in the first part, they will be completed in the second half. So I would suspect we'll have maybe two and a half, three thousand social houses uh, built this year at the end of the year, Mm. which is way, way below target and way, way below what's needed. Okay, so what's the point of these targets? Do you wonder that? Well, I think we need targets and we need Mm. ambitious targets and I'm all in favour of ambitious targets, but we need to really examine why we're not meeting those targets. Mm. And uh, some of that, some of that, and only some of it, but some of it is down to the bureaucracy. Mm. And is it necessary bureaucracy or could that be unravelled? It's all about control. 
Mm, yeah. <laughs> the Department of Housing want to keep control of everything. Mm. And they want to control the plans, they want to control the costings, uh, they want to control. And we're unique in the European Union for that. Local authorities have much more power mm. in, in all other European countries to make decisions. We don't give them the power to make decisions, and they don't have the money to make the decisions. The money is dependent on the Department of Housing. So I think we need to decentralise control and give the local authorities far more power and give them a certain amount of money and say, look, there you are, you get on, build Mm. social housing, come back to us when you have it completed. Yeah, but if you have a housing emergency and you set targets and you don't reach 50% of that target, you'd wonder where is the emergency? Well, that is an issue that I've raised consistently. While I welcome the minister's uh, plans, uh, and I think they're very ambitious, I really despair at there is very little sign of urgency in, in accomplishing, uh, uh, the, in, in addressing the housing mm. crisis. Very little sign of, of urgency. Okay, and this affects everybody, I mean, uh, uh, or pretty much everybody, in that uh, it obviously affects anybody who's on a social housing waiting list or uh, people uh, who are couch surfing, but it affects people who are looking to buy houses and people who are renting and the cost of rent and everything else associated with housing, because one thing feeds into another, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, it does affect everybody. There are people on very, very good salaries who are homeless, living with their parents or uh, or, or share sofa share sofa mm. surfing with friends because they simply cannot afford to get a mortgage and they cannot afford to uh, uh, to rent. So it does affect everybody. But well, one of the things that I have feel strongly about, the Department of Housing will always talk about the uh, number of houses that were completed. <clears throat> That's really irrelevant. It's the number of social and affordable houses that mm. are completed. That's the issue. If you have a million euro to buy a house, you have a wide range of, uh, of houses out there you can choose from. If you can spend three or four thousand euros a month renting, you have a wide range of choice out yeah. there. Mm. The problem is with social and affordable housing is in short supply, and that's the key factor. And that's what I want to see in the department's uh, statistics. Not the total number of houses built, <clears throat> because most of those are unaffordable, mm. but the number of social and affordable houses that are built. And that is always, always way below target. Okay, and you imagine a TD who's earning €100,000 would be able to afford uh, that type of rent uh, and then some probably uh, but we saw Kathleen Funchen, a Sinn Féin TD say that uh, she had to move home with her parents in order to try and get a, a deposit. Would you be concerned though about an underspend on this scale €200 million Euro, if they can't make it up by building uh, houses uh, would it uh, be used uh, in another way uh, to reach targets uh, of units uh, that are made available? Put it into, may well do. Uh, it may uh, well be uh, used either to buy houses, in which case you're competing with first-time buyers, <laughs> and because the demand has increased, you're pushing up the price of housing. So it could be used to buy houses. Uh, but there's huge negative consequences to that. Or it could be used to lease houses. We can lease houses, uh, we're on, say, a 25-year lease, spend an awful lot of money leasing that house, and at the end of the 25 years, we still don't own it. It goes back to the, uh, to the company that built it. So huge disadvantages in buying or leasing, but that's probably how they're going to make up the shortfall. Okay, all right. Uh, a disappointment at best? 
I'm almost in despair, to be honest. I think the future <laughs> is is very, very grim in terms of housing. Uh, I, I think we're really up against a brick wall. And unless we pull out much, much more radical policies and much more greater sense of urgency, I think we are facing a total catastrophe. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you, Peter, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Father Peter McVerry, who works tirelessly and has done for many years with the homeless. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Yeah, the National Women's Council of Ireland is launching its pre-budget submission uh, today and we're going to hear some of the detail now because Jennifer McCarthy Flynn, the Women's Council Head of Policy, is on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Jennifer, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. There'll be a, a lot of attention, as always, uh, to the budget when it's announced uh, for the year ahead. But this year, probably more so than other years because of it inflation and the rising cost of living and you want measures to be taken in the budget to address the poverty situation that a lot of women find themselves in this country like a lot of other groups uh, the women's council is calling for a 20 euro increase in social welfare rates that would add one and a half billion to the overall bill apparently yeah, good morning, uh, Michael, and thank you for having us on and having the opportunity to, to talk about our pre-budget submission. That's right, Michael, we are looking for those for an increase in 20 euros in those core social welfare payments. Um, really, this is absolutely the minimum that is needed to keep up with the uh, impact of inflation and also to ensure steady progress to an adequate uh, income for families and for women. Uh, the reason why you know, we are saying that women are most impacted by the terrible levels of inflation, which are impacting all of us, all families in Ireland at the moment, is really because women are entering into this inflationary crisis and this cost of living in crisis with less resources um, than others uh, in Ireland. Women are over 90% of lone, all lone parent headed households in Ireland and those are the families and the households that are most at risk of poverty. So that's really why we're saying those families, those households need really targeted income supports in order to really give them some protection against mm. the terrible impact that inflation is having on you know, basic living uh, expenses, particularly things like rent, care, um, uh, energy poverty again I know all things that your mm-hmm. listeners uh, know and that you've spoken absolutely, about yourself yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, well absolutely and uh, I think uh, there's a, a unique uh, situation with women that uh, quite often they're prevented from going to work because the cost exactly. of childcare is prohibitive exactly. uh, yeah. and uh, you want uh, investment in, in childcare in tandem with uh, those social welfare increases oh absolutely I mean I think we need those short term social protection investments that is that 20 euros a week but really we need to make a really government needs to make a really good intervention into those public services which are at the heart of some of the costs that are driving this inflationary pressure and that is impacting families. So for us, that one of those key ones is is care, particularly child care. As you just said yourself, it's, it's at the heart of why so many women are having to choose sort of uh, so part-time, often low-paid, precarious work. Six out of ten of our low-paid workers in Ireland are women for that very reason. Um, even when they have work, it's difficult to progress because of the lack of affordable uh, quality childcare in Ireland. And then the labour force, I'm, I'm sure, again, Michael, you're familiar with this, mm-hmm. childcare workers are predominantly women and it's a very poorly paid sector, unfortunately. It's a very precarious sector. Many actually have to come out of work yeah. and sign on over the summer months. So what we're calling for that 250 million euros investment that we're calling for, which we hope will take us along the road to a public childcare model, is 
interventions into the affordability issue for families, but also for pay for workers in the sector, which, you know, we believe if you can increase affordable quality childcare, more women can take up more full-time work. That will return money to the economy. But then also workers will have more money to spend in the economy as well. So we think investment in care, particularly childcare, has that really virtuous impact. It improves the quality of employment. It improves gender equality. It improves women's access to work and to education and training. But it also brings more money into the economy as well. So okay. I think, well, I think I, we can all agree that's a good aim overall in terms of €250 million euros worth investment. Well, uh, I think the government is flagging that there will be improvements uh, yes. in subsidising childcare. Yes, they are. We really welcome that. Yeah. Well, the proof yeah. will be in the pudding won't because yeah, of course, we, of course. It, yeah. won't, it won't be the first time we, we've heard promises along those uh, lines. It's not that long ago, I think, since we were promised a, a Scandinavian-style uh, model of uh, childcare in this country, uh, but we are far from that, undoubtedly. We are. We, yeah, we are. Yeah. We, uh, we would agree with you, Michael. We're very far from that, and really, if we're serious about having quality childcare, that's the model we need to move towards and 250 million euros could take us in the right direction and could begin to deliver that universal model of childcare that we know we need in order to really uh, underpin women's ability to access good full-time or good part-time work but also the the, the workers themselves in, in that labour force uh, who are delivering such excellence childcare for an early years education for children uh, but who are not well paid and who do not have good career prospects and are having to leave their work after making a serious investment in their own education so it's really about those two pieces affordability but also pay and conditions for workers as well Okay, uh, anybody reading the papers uh, this morning will see the Garda crime statistics and there's some really shocking statistics, Uh, the number of reported rapes are up 23% in the first six months of the year, there's been a, a significant to increase in domestic violence incidents uh, that have been reported and I suppose uh, those kind of statistics can be read both ways perhaps they're positive in that more people are reporting the crimes when they happen but there's an obvious problem with violence against women in this country uh, and you want uh, investment uh, in measures to prevent that through the budget. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right, Michael. Like we're we, we we're hoping that some of the figures and the increases is an increase in reporting, um, and we welcome all efforts that uh, Angela Shikorn and the Department of Justice are making to try and make the justice system and the reporting of of serious domestic and sexual violence crimes easier, more support available uh, for victim survivors when they come forward. We really welcome, say, some of the, the the prosecution and convictions for coercive control cases that have come through over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know. Obviously, the very shocking details about what coercive control can mean, um, largely for women. And we really welcome the fact that the Minister for Justice has brought forward a really ambitious uh, third national strategy, Zero Tolerance. It's got a very ambitious number of actions. And what we would really are calling on the government to do is to match the ambition of that strategy and an implementation plan with serious investment, particularly, we think, in this budget, in the accommodation plan and the issue of refugees. As again, I'm sure you know, Michael, and you're listening know we do not have refuge spaces in every county in Ireland. I mean, that's shocking, given that one in four women will experience some form of domestic sexual violence. We need to see available refuge spaces across the country, everywhere, that, so that they are accessible to women. We know this issue really can impact women in rural communities in particular, where they maybe have to travel, or even if they can travel and are able to leave, there isn't an availability of refuge spaces. So we really think that has to be the focus um, in this budget, and 
and also supports to specialist services to ensure that when women come forward and are able to make a report or even are able to, to, to make contact to begin to talk about what their options are, the, the report lines are open, the counselling services are available, uh, the accompaniment to courts is available, all those services that are so crucial in supporting women to exit uh, violent, abusive, coercive situations. So we can see more successful convictions because our conviction rates are still quite low in this country. So when women are being encouraged to come forward by all the awareness raising campaigns that we saw being run during COVID and that, that needs to be met with services, support uh, and real uh, support to take a, a prosecution all the way through the, to, through the judicial system as well. Refuge spaces, counselling, health, care needs, all of those need to be invested in so that women can be taken, women and their children can be taken care of and supported to leave these dangerous violent relationships and situations. We've just uh, about a a minute left at this stage, Jennifer, uh, but uh, before you leave us, uh, I know you'd like to see contraception made uh, available freely to older women and indeed uh, for support given to women in marginalised communities. That's right. Yeah, so we obviously really welcome the introduction of the free contraception scheme, Michael, but around 20% of pregnancies, of crisis pregnancies in the 26 to 35 year uh, year olds are what we would call crisis pregnancies. And given the cost of living um, crisis that we're in and the inflationary pressures that we're in, cost cannot be a barrier to contraception for this group of women or for women of any age, but we're focusing on this group for this budget. Universal access to free accessible contraception is obviously fundamental to having control over your body and having gender equality. But it is also one of the key ways that we can reduce poverty, increase capabilities to stay in education, training and to, stay, and to you know, in employment. But it also protects against adverse health conditions and prevents unplanned and crisis pregnancies, which again, obviously we all want to see that reduced too. So we think it's really important that the government makes a move to expanding the free contraception scheme to women aged 26 and over so that income levels doesn't impact access to the most effective forms of contraception for women, uh, particularly those women who are struggling with income um, issues at the moment already. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment and thank you very much indeed yeah, uh, for joining thanks, us. Michael, thank you, Michael, for the opportunity to speak. Thank Bye. you. We'll Bye. hear more undoubtedly through the day and indeed over the coming weeks uh, there'll be a lot of focus on the budget when it's announced in September. That's Jennifer McCarthy Flynn who's Head of Policy with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Turn to Me is a charity that was set up in 2009 by two brothers, Oshin and Jermard Scollard, when they sadly lost their brother, Cormac, to suicide, which was in 2003. The charity offers free counselling to people, for young people between the ages of 12 and 17, and support groups then for adults on relationships, issues, grief, anxiety, and depression, which runs most evenings, and is reporting a huge increase in the number of people who have been availing of their free mental health support services. Let's uh, speak uh, to its Chief Executive Officer, Fiona O'Malley. A very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, Tell us a a little bit about the services that you offer and how you manage to offer them free of charge. Yeah, so we offer um, three different services. We offer one-to-one counselling, we offer support groups on anxiety, depression, grief and relationship issues, and we also offer an online mood diary called a thought catcher. Um, we are funded by the HSE's National Office of Suicide Prevention and we also get donations from corporates and from the public 
to run our services. Okay. Um, and obviously the more donations that we get in, the more funding, the more um, services we can offer to okay. the public. Fiona, we, we have a terribly bad phone line. Uh, I'm going to... Um, to stop the conversation for a moment and try and improve on the phone line so that people can hear about the services uh, that you are offering uh, because uh, I think there'll be a lot of interest in how uh, these services are available uh, free of charge as mentioned. Uh, we'll come back to Fiona hopefully in the next few minutes uh, but some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning we were talking about e-scooters and Maraid was texting us and she says what happens if a pedestrian is knocked down by an e-scooter and injured? Who is going to compensate him or her um, I don't know is the simple answer it won't be an insurance company you could probably sue somebody uh, but I'm not sure that you could sue a 10 year old if they knocked you down like that uh, for uh, injuries done to you um, but uh, it's a, an interesting question another interesting question is should Michael D Higgins the President of Ireland uh, apologise uh, for this affair to do with Sabina's letter uh, we'll be talking to Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreen later in the programme who says uh, that the President should apologise it'll be the last item on the programme so if you have comments on that view uh, you're welcome to let us know and we can put those comments uh, to the Senator later in the programme. I uh, just want to go back briefly as well to the issue of our Ladies' Hospital in Navan, uh, because uh, we've had a lot of coverage about the hospital and the emergency department on the programme in the last week or two, let alone the last few months. Uh, and just want to relay uh, some of the communication that we've had uh, with Minister Stephen Donnelly. Uh, we wrote to the Minister and asked if uh, they, or if the Minister's uh, people could clarify if Stephen Donnelly was advised last November of poor patient outcomes, including an unnecessary risk of death in Navin if the emergency department remained open and that, despite that uh, advice, that somebody could die, no action uh, will be taken in respect of the risk to patients until the current review concludes, which is probably going to be in eight weeks' time, or ten months if you prefer, after the HSE advised the Minister to close the unit last November. The Minister, uh, we thought, might have wanted to make a a comment on uh, that situation. We also asked if uh, the Minister had instructed the HSE not to publish the terms of reference for this review or discuss its work with LMFM or other media. Uh, we know that the Minister put a uh, gagging order on the HSE in June uh, and I suppose we were just asking if he put a, another gagging order on the HSE in July. Additionally, we said, the Minister might let us know if he intends to publish the terms of reference at any stage in the future. In conclusion, uh, we reiterated our invitation to the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, to discuss the emergency department in Navan with the local radio station at a a time that would be convenient uh, to the Minister. And we did get a response uh, this morning to all of that, and I'll just read that to you, uh, which really doesn't uh, address any of uh, the points. Uh, It says, while recognising the very real clinical concern raised by the HSE, the Minister has been clear that several important issues, including uh, additional capacity in other hospitals impacted and the continued ability of people in the Navan area to access emergency and urgent care would need to be fully addressed before any proposed transition by the HSE. The Minister has asked the HSE to undertake a process to review, validate and stress test the reconfiguration planning. This process is now underway with a view to it being completed shortly. Thanks uh, to uh, the Department of Health uh, who sent us on that statement. Uh, not that there was anything new in it. We, we knew all that. Thanks very much. Um, uh, but... 
there's no answer. Uh, We will have to assume that the minister was told 10 months ago, or by the time the review concludes, uh, 10 months after that, uh, since last November, in other words, that somebody could die in Avon and he's choosing not to do anything about it. The minister is not telling us uh, about the terms of reference, uh, is not giving us the terms of reference, is not saying whether the terms of reference uh, for this review will be published. We're not getting any information about who's heading up the uh, review or uh, how people were selected uh, to be part of the team that is reviewing this whole thing. Um, Just the same old statement uh, about uh, validating and stress testing the thing and all that stuff. And the minister has not responded to our very specific question if he has directed the HSE not to speak to LMFM and other media. So thanks, as I said, to the Department of Health for that statement. Uh, I think we can go back to Fiona O'Malley, CEO of Turn To Me. Fiona, thank you indeed uh, for coming back to us uh, and uh, for your patience. The line uh, was uh, pretty poor, so hopefully people will be able to hear you a little bit better now. Uh, I was asking you about the services that you provide and how you manage to do it free of charge. I think you were uh, saying uh, that you, you get state funding. Yeah, so we get state funding from the National Office for Suicide Prevention and we also get public donations. And the more donations we get in, the more funding we have and the more services we can offer. Um, But since the start of 2022, the highest new users sign-up numbers have come from Dublin, Cork, Galway and Kildare. And the most commonly reported issue in our new users is anxiety. And anxiety was the most commonly reported issue from every county in Ireland in 2021 and is indeed the most commonly reported issues um, thus far in 2022. Okay, and you'll deal with any issue. I mean, I know that's a um, fairly open question, but a lot of people have uh, different issues of their own uh, um, that they feel that they might need help with, whether that's uh, anxiety or stress or relationship issues or whatever the case may be. And you can help people uh, through those uh, times in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And we have, as I said, we have three different services. We have one-to-one counselling sessions, we have support groups, and we have an online mood diary called a Thought Catcher. And the best thing about the support groups and the mood diary, the Thought Catcher, is that there's no waiting list. So everyone for for years has always been talking about the negative and the really long waiting list in the health service um, in Ireland for accessing mental health services. But our support groups and our thought catcher have no waiting list at all. So a new user could create an account on our website and within an hour start using the thought catcher or sign up for our support groups on anxiety, depression, grief or relationship issues. And those support groups run most evenings on our website at 6pm. So I, I would encourage any of your listeners who want to use those professional free mental health services to sign up on our website which is turntome.ie Very good and absolutely free of charge of a a suspicion you may be hearing uh, from people in Louth and Mead because it's uh, a great service uh, that you're providing that you're able to do it uh, without a charge like that because of uh, the funding and the support that you get from people Um, and uh, do you take calls or uh, do you hear from uh, people who are concerned about other people, family members in other words? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of our users um, would be parents and they would talk about issues that their children are facing, whether it's bullying, whether it's exam stress on the support groups that we offer. Um, and as I said, the HSE's office, National Office for Suicide Prevention funds 
um, a certain bracket of our services, so we are able to offer them for free. Um, so if people want to avail of those services, they're available every day. Um, the talk catcher runs every day from 2 p.m. until 8 p.m. and then the support groups are available most evenings at 6 p.m. on our website. But people, a lot of people would report, I suppose, stresses and worries about their children, um, about siblings, or even about parents on our website. That's very, very common. It's not just worries about your own stresses. Oftentimes people take on stresses from, from for their loved ones as well. Okay, very good. Uh, and turn to me.ie is how people can make contact with you. I think some may do that uh, after hearing uh, you speak uh, this morning, Fiona. And thank you indeed uh, for doing that and for joining us on uh, the programme today as well. Thank for, you for having me. Thank you very much indeed. Fiona O'Malley is the CEO of Turn To Me. That's uh, the number two, turntome.ie. Now, uh, some more comments. Uh, somebody WhatsApping is saying e-scooters should have a saddle. People would be uh, better able to control them if they were sitting down. Uh, it doesn't look right uh, the way they're standing up. Uh, I have to agree with that to some extent. Uh, it does seem uh, as though you're very vulnerable, uh, especially if you hit a stone or something like that. Somebody else says, it's a lazy man or woman's way of getting around. Is it any wonder we have obesity? Thank you too for that. I I, I, I don't know. I think in a, a different world with different infrastructure and all of that sort of thing, uh, there could be a uh, great opportunity for using e-scooters. Uh, I don't think it's laziness. Uh, I think it could get us out of our cars, for example, uh, if we had the infrastructure. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, but thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, as you heard earlier this week, uh, the Junior Social Protection Minister, Joe O'Brien, is suggesting that pensions and indeed social welfare rates generally will be benchmarked with the average industrial wage, which means that as the average industrial wage increases with inflation, so too will pensions and social welfare rates. Let's speak to Sue Shaw, CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament, and a very good morning to you, and thanks for joining us once again on the programme today. Sue, what do you make of this proposal? Well, good morning to you and your listeners. The proposal has been around now for, I think, a good few years anyway. And the Department of Social Protection themselves would acknowledge that Ireland is an outlier in not linking its uh, welfare rates to something. We operate a very ad hoc basis, so therefore people have no security around their income. So I think it's a very good idea, and it's also targeted at those who are most at risk of poverty now with the uh, ever-increasing cost of living and always were, to be truthful. But uh, I think it's to be welcomed. It'll be interesting to see how it's going to be funded and how they're going to manage that. But it is it is something to be welcomed, mm. that's for sure. And the, the report, the, report um, um, the, commission of, the commission report on pensions had named that there was a need to identify securing the pension and social transfers to something more solid than the ad hoc post, the way we have it. Now, I take it it, it depends on, on how much you're getting uh, uh, for your pension. Uh, and there's going to be different rates uh, of pension. Yes. And that could be part of this uh, because 
there's little detail on um, what's coming down the line, but it, it seems as though the government is going to move to a situation where you'll be able to retire at 66, but if you stay on until you're 70, uh, you'll get a higher pension. So that could mean something, for example, like if you retire at 66, the pension will be brought down to €200. Euro. And at 67, you get 210 uh, and so on until you're 70, and then maybe you'd get €250. Euro. I'd like, well, currently it's, it's depending, I suppose, on the, the top rate of pension is 253. So, therefore, it, it's unlike, so if they're moving at that when they develop this system where they're encouraging people to stay on in work yeah. and deferring their payment and having a lesser payment, then I'd like to see how that, I'd like to get a good look at that before we see. Well, that, that, that's what I'm saying. We, we haven't got the detail of it, but no my, my, my suspicion is that if you retire at 66, you'll be brought down to 200, let's say, in today's money, uh, and you'll get the full pension at, at 70. So you'll be on that 250. It's, and it also seems to me in the, the discussion around it that they were saying that there'd be, it'd be you get an increase, you'd be rewarded as such mm. for deferring. Mm. So... I don't know how that system will work. Like that's, depending on the job you're doing, mm. you may be able to have the possibility. Well, you might work for 30 years and retire at 70, and you might work for 50 years and retire at 66. Yes, exactly. And also, but depending on the work, the job, the, the, the work you're doing, if it's physically not mm. feasible or practical, or if, say, you're like air traffic controllers or guards, and there is a limit as to how far you can go on, um, wasn't it, the, wasn't it one of the guard commissions who challenged it? Um, and it, it went nowhere. He still had to retire at the age that they had to do it, and it was earlier than the, 60, the 66. Mm. But I do think some people, yes, some companies will be able to absorb you into a different space in the organisation if you can, but for lots of people they can't. So there's a, a bit about the fairness of that. I may want to stay on, but because of the nature of the work I do, physically I'm no longer able, mm. but... Uh, the company haven't got a facility to take me in. So I think there's a lot of details still mm. to be worked out on that. Yeah, like but if it, they're but linking it to the in the industrial wage, the argument was 34%. I'd like to see what percentage they say they're going to pay of the average in industrial wage to keep us abreast with inflation. Okay, and that would be the starting point. But <clears throat> as the average industrial wage increases, I imagine on an annual basis, then they'll be looking at uh, that increase. So if it increased by 2%, the pension would increase by 2%. That's it, exactly. Uh, if it increased by 10%, uh, it, the pension would increase by 10%. So, so, so let's say... I, I'm on a pension of 200 because I retired at 66 and you're on a pension of 250 because you retired at 70 uh, and we both get a 10% increase. Uh, I'll get, what, €4 euro, uh, and you'll get €5, euro, I think. And isn't that always the difficulty when we talk about percentages? But at the end of the day, there's a lot of detail mm. before I think we can see this. It's certainly the premise of linking the current pension as it stands and social welfare transfers to uh, something more solid to create security of income. Because I think I, I said this before with you that the bottom line is there was a five, grand, five euro offered last year. Mm. The bottom line for a lot of older people, that amounted to a fairly well, to an insult because it didn't even cover the then cost of living. Yeah. Two years previous to that, there was nothing given. So it's linking your pension increase to the political 
system, the whim of the day, rather than, and it's not even a whim, it's about, but I do think it needs to be linked mm. to something that is much more structured and can guarantee people. Okay, I was, I, I was missing a, a zero in my top of the head calculations. A 10% increase on my 200 euro would bring me to 220, and a 10% increase yeah. on your 250 euro would yeah. bring you to 275, an extra 25. So suddenly you've got this gap. Uh, of 200 and 250 going from 220 to 275 and that gap will keep widening if that's the way they're planning this staggered pension thing over the years. That would be divisive, I think. Mm. I don't think people will welcome that. So there's a lot of detail still to to be worked out. I mean, I do know this discussion has been around for some time, but not the, the, the certainly linking the pension to the average industrial wage has been around for a while or to the inflation rates or whatever. That has been around. But this piece of saying, well, we want, if you defer, you get a choice. And I'm not about not having mm. a choice. It's just about we need to be really clear how beneficial that is to people and how that everybody gets the option of staying on. It mm. isn't just. Uh, well, my company can let me stay on yours. Yeah, well, there's one thing saying you can stay on. Are we going to force people to start work at 16? That's it. I mean, if you think about mm. it a lot, I certainly know a lot of our members started work at 14 to 16. Mm. Third level education wasn't the option. So for them, the mm. option of staying on. And yeah. of course, as we age... And, and their taxes, of course, paid for people to stay in college. Well, yes, and we hope that that's the system yes. that's the system mm. we've established where one cohort support the other as we go through. Mm. But the, the, the cohorts that are being supported now, as I mentioned, they supported people before that. Mm. So it's a system that supports, it's, it's like a universal system that we support each other. But once we begin to move into new areas of managing the payments and managing the allowance that's been given, I think we need to think really clearly about that it, it, it doesn't divide people and it doesn't end up but I think it's to be welcomed nonetheless that there is now a way of looking at securing your, your social welfare transfer. Mm. The pension in particular, we're saying, look, it's the only state payment that you're not being given to help you return to work. Mm. It is your, that's it. And you don't, uh, you don't have a capacity of picking up other work because most people don't want to employ older workers. Yeah. Even on a part-time basis. No, well, I mean, what would you do if you were laid off at 68? Exactly. But, I mean, one of the interesting things was we would have a lot of people who continued to work. Uh, and when the, they were laid off during COVID, when they were let go of COVID, they couldn't collect their, their public payment. But they were only working because of financial difficulties they had gotten into during the crash. Mm. And they were looking to clear that and give themselves by 70 or thereabouts a, an ease of life. So there is, you know, if we're, we'd want to make sure that we're attaching any other payments that go with that to say, well, if you're working to that age, then you get the benefits that go with it. But like people who did work beyond the 65 did not get the pub payment when they were uh, laid off like the other workers. Mm. Yeah, I heard Leo Bradker uh, some time ago talk about when the state pension was introduced in this country uh, and uh, it was first made available uh, to uh, people who were 70 uh, and older. But the intention was that there'd be very few people who'd be entitled to it because most people were dead before the time they got to 70. So uh, there wasn't much... Uh, cost uh, to the British state as it, it was at, at the time. Um, would you be concerned that that might be the kind of thinking that's being used now in terms of the pension bill? I think the the, the fact that we are an ageing, the world is ageing better. Well, actually, no. 
there's an ageing demographic in certain parts of the world. We are living longer, we're living better quality of life. Medical research, medical med improvement in, in that has made, given us a better quality of life to some degree. Mm. But at the end of it, yes, you are right. People picked up the pension and they lived uh, a couple of years after and there was no major cost to the state for it. And I do agree, we do have to look at it. As we are looking, like 90-year-olds, not unusual, mm. 95, as we're looking at that, we do have to look at that how do we budget for that? How do we pay for that? Mm. But not at the detriment of those who are in receipt of it. Mm. And, uh, I mean, there's the very worrying situation of making it unaffordable to retire for people who just aren't able to work uh, if uh, they're in physical jobs. And I suppose the reality is we're facing into, like, there's, there's a, I imagine there's a, a, a range of issues that are, are facing as we go down the years, 10 years from now. You people who are 55 are renting. At 65, when they retire and they don't have, they can't afford, they haven't been able to afford to contribute to a state, to a private pension, they're not going to be able to afford the rent. So continuing people working for a variety of reasons, but none often that the person themselves created. State policy might have led to it. Like certainly our housing crisis is, will have a huge impact on older people. Mm. We're not going to build that cohort, that, that, that need. Uh, in the time space that, that's given to us because we're not doing it now mm. and it doesn't look like there's any solid plans to really go for that. But I do think, I mean, I think it was Leo Varadkar himself a few weeks ago said, look, you know, most most older people are homeowners only because they bought when there was social housing. They were able to rent it and then when they could, their families got a bit bigger, they were able to buy out. That system isn't in place now. So you will have younger people as they age will never have a home. Mm. So the, I think the pension and working are all connected to all of the other pieces. But I think we need to be really clear that, yes, the idea of the state pension being linked to the average industrial wage is a positive. We need to, but we'd like to see the fine detail of it. We welcome it, um, yeah. Mr. O'Brien's statement on it, but we certainly would like to see the fine detail of it. Linking it is the right thing to do. It's how it's linked. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's how it's linked. And what at the end of the day it comes out. I remember my father at trade union years ago saying to me, don't listen to when they tell you they're offering your percentage. Ask about what cash will you have in your hand to pay mm. your bills. Yeah. And I think that's what we need to be. Well, he probably told you that 100% of nothing is nothing. Exactly. <laughs> it's not a lot of point. To <laughs> so I'd like to see what, and I don't think it'll be done in this budget. I'd be surprised if it would, but... Mm. Um, I don't think the, the structure is in place to do that. So we're still saying this budget needs to look at digit, double figures. We're saying there's a minimum of 20 quid for people to able to manage this cost of living increase in this upcoming budget. So it'll be interesting to see what. Mm. And that will just about match with inflation. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of pressure on government because there's almost an expectation at this stage uh, that uh, pension and all welfare rates will increase by 20 euro because so many groups are calling for it as a necessity, yourselves included, obviously, Sue. So, uh, I think so. And the bottom line is budget often has been a universal budget and, of course, everybody is impacted. There is no, there's no, very few people are not impacted by the way our cost of living has gone. Mm. But at the end of the day, we need to target it to those who are most at risk of falling into serious illness, seriously into debt, not able to afford to eat. Like a choice of eating or heating your home should never be on the cards. And it now is a reality for lots of people as we look at this winter. 
Okay, we leave there. Thank you. Nice to talk to you as always. That's uh, Sue Shaw, CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there's some 69 parishes in the Diocese of Cork and Ross, but yesterday the Bishop, uh, Dr. Fintan Gavin, uh, announced that the 69 parishes will be reorganised into 16 families of parishes. This is uh, how a number of parishes will be clustered together and there'll be 16 of these clusters and that each of those will be administered by a team of priests. There'll be a priest who'll be resident in each of the parishes uh, but they'll minister across all of the parishes, it seems. It's part of uh, the diocese's response to a renewal programme that was sought under the Vatican's synodal pathway uh, and is expected to uh, be a model that will be followed across the rest of the country. The reason for this is quite simple. There aren't enough priests in the country. Uh, Priests are getting older and fewer are going into the priesthood. Let's uh, speak uh, to Father Iggy O'Donovan, Augustinian priest, and a very good morning to you as always, Iggy. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Uh, I don't think there's any surprise uh, in this, the necessity to um, have uh, the fewer priests that there are spread out over wider uh, parishes like this. Well, well, Michael, at the risk of your listeners getting very fed up but uh, it's not just Cork at the moment. Uh, it's uh, I know here in my own archdiocese of Cashel, it's Limerick all over the all over the place. And um, but um, what is striking me as now, some of us who raised this question twenty five, I recall, would you believe, Michael, talking with, with your predecessor, one Paul Maguire, twenty five years ago mm. on this very topic. Mm in the old LMFM up there at the Bolton Square area of Drogheda. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not as if we were prophets at the time, those of us who highlighted this coming down the road. We were staring something straight in the face. And far from getting any credit for raising it, we were seen as sort of we were losers, we were cowards, we were heretics, we were disloyal. We were giving up the game before half time, if you like, because we, we were defeatist. When, in fact, the point that was being made by a small group was that, look, the road we're on, we're heading to extinction if we don't make some move fast. And uh, so, therefore, it's not with any joy I would say something like this. I was no prophet, not with, not with anybody else. But the nowadays, this rejigging of parishes and bringing them together with a view to p- putting limited resources, uh, trying to get the best out of them, mm. we are very akin to, if you like, refixing the deck chairs on the Titanic. What's unforgivable, it's, now it's, initiative is good, and I'm nothing, or don't, I won't be negative about it, but for those who pointed out the iceberg years ago, suddenly now this brand new initiative is coming up. What I would like, Michael, sometimes perhaps, rather than just talking to me, which you, you, you speak to me regularly, yeah. that mm-hmm. those who felt that people, me and people like me, that we were, that we, we were wrong, Mm. And they kept the show on the road and they have given us what we have now. Perhaps some of them would come on and tell you what their modus operandi is or where they hope to go. They'll be the ones doing it because people like myself are on the back benches and we won't be involved much at all. 
Okay, well, the Archbishop of Tuam, Francis Duffy, was quoted in the Daily Mail yesterday as telling parishioners to uh, look at their priest. He he said, he may be the last in a long line of resident pastors and may not be replaced. I suggest you look at your church. You may be lucky to have a Sunday Mass or several, but for how much longer? Uh, And uh, the same paper, the Mail, uh, gave some very interesting figures. Just nine men entered uh, a seminary last year. In 2004, there was 3,141 priests in in the country, 2,627 priests in 2014, uh, and the current number available is just 1,900. So uh, it's a dying breed, if I can put it that way. Sure, but we're missing another point. There's another dying breed, Michael. Mm. There's another dying breed. It's not just the clergy. And again, this was pointed out, and uh, I, certainly I was one who mm. did, but there were many, there were others, small group again. But it's not just the clergy, it's the congregation. Yeah, I know. And, and we, I thought some of uh, our uh, new residents uh, may have solved that for you. Uh, particularly that is, that's a bit of, uh, okay, that's a, uh, okay, that's, that's window dressing. But okay. we, we all, we learned the word there during the COVID crisis. The scientists came up about whether the numbers going up or down in COVID. And they used to use what they call the R figure, meaning the replacement of the reproductive. Mm. And if it was above one, we were in trouble. If it was below one, it meant we were heading in the right direction. And there just aren't enough Polish people Our or Filipinos, are there? We are using the R figure as well. And at the moment, both the Roman Church and others, not all, but others, the replacement or reproduction figure, the R figure, is below one. So that no matter what priests we have, God knows there's not too many of them now, the congregation is going towards extinction. If it goes that way, it means that in about 20 years' time, there'll be virtually nobody in the church anyway. Mm. So what do you want to find stadium for if you don't even have a team to play? Mm. Now, wh- now, it is easy to be, I'm sure there's people out there saying, you're negative again, negative again. Have your solutions. There's a couple of things that some of us have advocated for many, many years. One is the whole the question, say, of a married clergy. Without that, you're not going to replace them now. And I'm suggesting that the many fine priests I know that left in order because they wanted to raise a family or be married, they are still priests, and there could need be no doctrinal change there. They should be given the option of coming back. Would more people go to Mass if priests were married? There'd certainly be more priests. Mm. That's one thing. Now, it's too late for me at this stage. In any event, it's an Augustinian, it won't arise. And besides, Michael, I celebrated my old age pension birthday last week. Oh, congratulations. Now, secondly, <laughs> the whole thing of the role of women, at least women deacons. I would advocate women priests, but at least women deacons. And the third thing we need is that we need a full, open, frank discussion and debate, freedom of discussion. Again, this is not something to be reserved for a small minority who in the past were persecuted when they raised serious topics. Something jumps to mind. I recall many, many years ago, you may remember it, Michael, a group of us in Drogheda invited Colm O'Gorman to speak about, on the issue of safeguarding many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, safeguarding is a serious issue for everybody and being taken very seriously, and I acknowledge that. But we were forbidden to bring Colm into the church. I had invited him. I had to disinvite him. He was going to speak to our congregation on the issue of safeguarding. Now, simply the order came from Armagh, and I'm not telling a lie, the order came to stop him. He was not welcome in the Catholic Church, Colm O'Gorman, to speak on that issue. I mean, that is the type of thing we dealt with. Mm. Now, the rejigging that's going on now, hopefully it'll lead to something. I hope I don't sound too negative, but I feel that we have been holed beneath the waterline at this point. (laughs) 
Oh, when yeah. we saw the iceberg coming so long ago and we ignored it. Well, may, may, maybe my memory's failing me, but I, I, I don't remember that. I do remember Colm O'Gorman, um, uh, and I remember Colm O'Gorman before he set up uh, the One in Four group, and yeah. uh, he had made his allegations against Father Sean Gorman, uh, uh, which shook this country uh, and resulted in a BBC yeah. programme called Suing the Pope. Uh, uh, and changed the, the, the church and child protection uh, and changed the world for children in this country, probably well, more importantly than anything else. Why was he not uh, welcome in, in the Augustinian church in Drogheda? He would have been welcome in the yes. Augustinian church. But, 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 but Armagh uh, didn't want him he, there. Instruction came from on high. God yeah. rest the man who spoke to me is now dead. Anyway, mm. but... In any event, my, they didn't speak to me directly. They spoke to my provincial, who told me to withdraw the, that he had no option but to withdraw the invitation. But the few people around me in Drogheda who were welcoming Colomud, I felt that, that, that he was raising a deadly serious issue. Now, we now know that this issue has done more damage to the church than the Reformation, by far more damage than the Reformation crisis five centuries ago. Mm. And... But, and there's the Pope over in Canada last week. There, there's the Pope over in Canada last week. I mean, there seems to be no end to it. Uh, we're hearing yeah. about this since Look, the 1990s. We, you had a few people at the time that were very lonely figures who were raising the topic, like Colin O'Gorman. Mm-hmm. And now there's a traffic jam on the road to Damascus, if you get me. Mm-hmm. So, but in any event, I think the issues I raised there, whether it be the married clergy, the role of women, full, flu, f- open and frank discussion, such as the Colin O'Gorman issue, yeah. at least if that's faced... We might even begin to get somewhere. If we don't, then we're moving around the deck chairs, but the ship is already deep, low in the water. Mm. And by its own admission, by its own rules, uh, members of the church are are liars um, because uh, we learned as a result of all of these revelations about a a church policy called mental reservation. Well, (laughs) mental reservation was if you were asked a question and you didn't want to give the truthful answer. You lied, yeah. You you could give a lie, but it was called mental reservation. And uh, uh, but anyway, that's hopefully that has we've overcome much of that. Hopefully now, and I'd still hope hope that this rejigging which we are facing will make a difference. But if there's not some. and I'm not want to get rid of the traditional religion by any means. Keep all of that if you want, but at least make allowance for those people who are seeing an alternative method. Late in the day, though, it is. I feel in my case, it's too late. And but the problem is, and uh, Michael, I think I, I hope I made this point. For me, the problem is not just a shortage of clergy. It, Christianity could survive very well without most of us, I think, anyway. But if the congregation is gone. And they're fast disappearing. I spoke to a little, a small group here in Tipperary last weekend, and there was a letter from the Archbishop on this very topic. And I said, as I look at you here, why is there nobody under 50, or almost nobody under 50 present here today? And I said, I said that is the issue we're facing as much as the shortage of clergy. You'll always get uh, geezers like me up there who can struggle on. But... <laughs> The, um, the, 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 if you don't have the team on the field, yeah. you can have the best referee and official you can ever come up with. But he's like all to do. Okay, a, a church, a church trapped in the dark ages. I take it is uh, the answer to your question. Well, mm. I, I suppose the sad aspect is that for people who have said the, raised these very topics and said that this rejigging needed to start three decades ago, mm. and but but far from being in any way welcomed. 
it was sort of seen as that some type of dangerous subversives who are undermining the faith and undermining the church and disloyal to the disloyal to the hierarchy and so forth. Our problem was we weren't disloyal enough. Okay, Yiggy, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, we are where we are, as uh, the politicians say. But thank yes. you indeed uh, for and joining us this morning. Last word. Yep. While I disagreed with the content of Mrs. Higgins' letter, yeah. Sabina, I would fight for her right to say it because I know the feeling. And I'm glad she said it, but I disagree with what she said. Okay. okay. All right. Well, we're going to hear from somebody uh, who feels otherwise in a moment. Thank you indeed, Augustinian priest Iggy O'Donovan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the President of Ireland's wife, Sabina Higgins, has said she wrote that letter that he was talking about a moment ago in a personal capacity. Uh, and uh, she put it on her dedicated section on the President's official website so that people could access it. She said she's dismayed that people found her plea for peace to be unacceptable. Well, that certainly seems uh, to be the case. Erin uh, McGreen, Fianna Fáil Senator, is on the, the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Do you uh, accept Mrs Higgins' uh, clarification at this stage? Good morning, Mike, and thanks for having me on. I suppose my point is that I don't know why um, Sabina Higgins is dismayed um, that private comments, um, that we have a problem with private comments that are contrary to foreign, the government's foreign policy, um, that we have a problem with that going up on our official president's website. Um, I don't think anyone, anybody criticised Mrs Higgins for asking for peace and for hoping for peace and, and hoping for a peaceful outcome into this atrocious war. Um, the problem was, Michael, was that the fact that there was a statement that equated Russia with Ukraine as equal partners in this war. And we all know um, that Russia are the aggressors in this war and that you know Ukraine didn't invade Russia or ask for this. It was all the other way around. And that's what the, the main problem of that letter was. Now, the problem was you know, that it was put, that those opinions were put on our president's website. Not the fact that, a, that a, 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 an individual has a private, a private opinion. That's not, that's not my concern whatsoever. It's the fact that something to contradict government policy went on our president's website. And really, you know, that it's apples and oranges, Michael, to be able to, there's no real difference there in saying that it was on, you know, Sabina's section of the website. There is no constitutional mandate for a spouse or a partner of the president. And really, personal and political opinions shouldn't be going up um, on the website. Uh, and you've, you've questioned uh, the president's respect for people uh, and indeed for his office as a result of what happened. I do, Michael. I think it's the president, or at least the office, should absolutely apologise. And by publishing the view on, on the website... It, it legitimises that or endorses it as something that the, uh, this state that it, this state endorses. And the, you know, there was an MP from Ukraine, Kira Rudik, on our on our airways yesterday. I'm not sure she was on your show, but she was on a lot of radio shows speaking about speaking about how she was upset when she saw that because it it looked it came from officialdom, and you know, it doesn't make a difference whether it was Mrs Higgins or whether it was President Higgins. It's the same thing once it comes from an official state website. But you believe that it's a reflection on the president? Well, I think um, we must look at where where the protocols are. 
And when, you know, content goes up on the website, there should be very clear, strict rules in those protocols. And my God, if you've ever worked on events or anything or involved in the president, I'm sure you have over your years of, of broadcasting, protocols and rules are finely tuned and nothing happens by accident. So I really do think that this didn't, this didn't happen by accident either. And to equate um, press releases and commentary about yoga and breastfeeding and, and, and drama to something, to a war, is, is not the same thing. Mrs. Higgins goes to lots of events and makes very, you know, well-meaning and, mm. and proper statements on, on a lot of social social issues. But this is not a, so, this is a gr- far greater than the president's office. This is a war mm. on innocent But, but, but you said, Michael D. Higgins, the president on Ukraine, disrespected our nation and the office of the presidency uh, because... Yeah, because... Well, the office of the presidency is far greater than any one person. And I think, you know, that what, what goes up onto the But website, you're saying that uh, our, our president, Michael E. Higgins, disrespected the office of the presidency. But by allowing, it is disrespected. The office is disrespected by having that letter up on the website. And that is my opinion, Michael. OK, two comments if I can. Uh, Tom and Dog says he fully supports Sabina Higgins on her views for peace talks on uh, the Ukraine. So we all, Michael. Okay, but just, just, we just, all support okay. peace. He says our, our weak politicians should support her fully too. This conflict conflict will end eventually, so why not save lives and resources by talks now? Well said, Sabina, he says. Uh, Paddy Duffy says, our, our President Michael D. Higgins received over one million votes. My advice for any senator who didn't get any votes from the general voting public is to pick a better fight. It's obvious what is behind this. It's Michael D's comments about the disaster of the government's housing policy. Sometimes the truth hurts. Just learn to take it on the chin, Paddy says. That's two opinions, Michael. But my opinion is that our constitution matters, that our, that our office of our president matters, and that the constitution is very, very careful in spelling out powers and functions of the president. And I believe there is no room for any implied powers and certainly not implied powers in making up government foreign policy and that is not the role of the president and if we were very serious about democracy and respecting our country and our and our and their office of our president because i hold that very very seriously then we should not be allowing to allowing to, to for them to sway in to areas that it has no business swaying into Mm. And there is no constitutional remit again for a spouse or a partner of the of the president. Okay, it's and not a it's not a witch hunt, then, is it? It's not as Paddy Michael, Duffy I, says I, I because the president made comments do. on housing. I have far I have made made lots of comments on health, make lots of comments on lots of things. Just just on, on my Twitter stream, I, I make lots of comments. This comment has been picked up by an awful lot of media people. So this this obviously is very important to to the media. Um, you know, I make lots of things and, and it's ignored. Um, so this is very important, but it's very important and it's greater than M- Michael D. Higgins, our president. This mm. is the office of our president and it is a very, very important role. And if, if people want to criticise me as a senator who, go, who really respects our constitution and wants that re- respect upheld, I think that's a reflection on them, not myself. Because I don't, I, to be honest, uh, we all know the crisis that's in housing. We all know that there is a huge difficulty in so many areas mm. of, across housing, across health and disabilities. And Michael, I've, I, I work 
day in, day out. And all well, of you'd forgive people for I, thinking that the government doesn't want Michael D. E. Higgins. People can think what they wish. And I have, this is my opinion on this issue. And this is what we're speaking about today. And, you know, just because someone said something in the past shouldn't bar me from saying something in the future um, because it might... People, because people think I'm going after someone. Mm. Michael, I'm entitled to my opinion. Like, it's, like not, it's not a question of having waited in the long grass since those uh, disastrous I comments more, about housing. I have better things to be doing with with my life than waiting in the long grass for a president. This is not this is not um, any sort of witch hunt or anything like that. The facts remain that a private individual put put opinions up on our state official website that contravenes government policy. And that is anti-constitutional and it goes beyond the remit of our president. And that's really the issue that I have. Not not anything that Mrs. Higgins in a private mm. capacity said. I didn't comment on it being published in the Times. Um, that, that, that is her own business. But don't pretend that this hasn't, hasn't got consequences because internationally it has been seen. And do you think that Russia... Welcome the comments. But well, that's not a good look, Michael. OK, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us. Fianna Senator Erin McGreen. Now, before we go, you uh, just some comments on electric uh, bikes and scooters. Somebody says they've uh, an e-bike. Uh, they've been dr- cycling it for years. I don't cycle on the footpath and I do wear a helmet. I have a high-vis jacket and lights, etc. Uh, but no one should be on the footpaths. After all, it is a foot path. E-scooters with two, three people on them with earplugs on listening to music uh, and they're fully electric. The Garda should be finding these people. Uh, Another call from somebody uh, who says it's a WhatsApp message from John Adrod who says, I I think if uh, they were allowed uh, many people would be entering the priesthood. Uh, I presume that's uh, women, John. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that. And thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today, or indeed today over the course of the programme, because that's where our time has run out. That's our programme for today, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.